0: Why don't you call Randall? Cause I'm fing tired.
1: I just closed last night. Jesus. What time do you think you're gonna come in? Twelve? Be there by twelve? Where? Swear you'll be there by twelve and I'll do it. Twelve or I walk. Okay, let's oh, right go. Right, go. Hello and welcome welcome and hello this is wait you haven't seen it's a show where we talk about movies and specifically we talk about a movie at least one of us has never seen before I'm your host Travis aka TV's Travis this is episode number 155 and the movie that we watch this week is 1994's Clerks written and directed by Kevin Smith and joining me to talk about it because he had never seen it before from soundography it's Hammond Chamberlain Hammond how are you
0: Good uh it's been a while since I was on last. I think we talked about uh the
1: uh, dreads yes yep it was uh you and um and drew and we did uh, judge dread and dread back to back. that was a fun one yeah comparing and yeah. contrasting so you had one l- was really good and the other really wasn't <laughs> exactly uh so you had never seen clerks before and uh, you let that slip on an episode of soundography which I it caught my attention and so I, I had to get a hold of you. <laughs> Um, so are you, are you much of a Kevin Smith movie fan or, and this was just one that you didn't see, or do you not really care for his movies much?
0: Well, so I like his movies a lot. That's the thing. I just happened to be, this was 1994. So I was graduating from college. Mm -hmm. I was starting a new job working at the jail. I was, uh, deep in a relationship that was going to end in four years and it just wasn't it wasn't something that hit my radar.
1: Okay. Uh
0: I've seen other Kevin Smith movies. I like um what's the one where the the where uh Oh gosh, with the
1: the Angels? Dogma. dogma. dogma yeah.
0: Dogma's good. Yeah, Dogma's, dogma's good. Uh Clerk not Clerks um Chasing Amy, really like that. In mm-hmm. fact, I there's a, a joke I used when I was stage managing uh, from Chasing Amy that broke that kind of broke the crew for 10 or 15 minutes. So <laughs> Uh, okay. There, there are there are things. I, I mean, I love the fact he's a comic book guy. I love the fact he, you know, is a fan of certain things that weren't cool to be fans of back in the early the nineties and two thousands, and now they're cool. Yep. Uh, we saw. I saw the Strikes Back with my wife. Um, okay. So it's not like I'm avoiding him. It's just I'm not ensconced in the Kevin Smith universe as as I would be if we
1: were talking about something else. Sure. Okay. Well, that makes sense. And this, I mean this was his first film and and as such we'll kind of get into you can you can tell some of that that it's his first mm-hmm. film um but it set the stage for him but it's always interesting to me how how that can happen and it makes sense if it was just it it hit theaters or it hit you know at a time when it wasn't convenient for you to really see it and then it kind of gets out of sight out of mind you just forget about it yeah mm-hmm. um i First saw this movie, uh, I I want to say it was around the time of Dogma's release. Uh, so okay. it would have been late 90s, 98, 99, um, because I had seen Mallrats and I had seen somebody I know had uh, had a copy of Chasing Amy and I'd seen that. Um, I still haven't seen Mallrats either. I forgot all about that one. So, yeah, Mallrats is another is is kind of fun. It's sort of like if it's basically if clerks had a bigger budget and could do more. It's, it's more, much more like that. One of the things with this movie is, as I said, it's his first film. And you can tell that because it's more or less a series of vignettes that loosely tie together with the, over the course of a day. Um,
0: so for, for me, that whole thing made it feel like it was a black and white
1: adult peanuts cartoon. That's actually a pretty good way to put it. Um, I hadn't thought about it like a peanuts cartoon, but yeah. So that type of storytelling for Kevin Smith would continue with mall rats was very much kind of a series of vignettes tied around this loose thing that all happened in a day. He got better with his, um, narratives in chasing Amy and yes. then dogma. And, you know, he, he got better at kind of time, keeping it from uh, making it feel more cohesive. I think it'd be the way to put it. Mm-hmm. Um, the but, other thing
0: too is he he did he did have a, a uh, access to a bigger talent pool as he had more money.
1: Mm-hmm. Oh sure, yeah. And I'm actually, not saying these
0: people were bad. I'm just saying that they look like they were acting in their first film,
1: and most of them were. Um, yeah. So that is that is something uh, definitely with this is this movie was made for a shade over twenty seven thousand uh, dollars is what he his budget for making the movie, and it shows. In, in part, that was just the Gatorade. That was just the Gatorade. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. Um, he was actually working at that quick stop at the time of making it. So, the, the convenient, it all takes place at the, at the quick stop slash RTS video, which he worked at. And he would work, you know, six in the morning till 11 at night. And then they would shoot from 11 until like four or five in the morning. Uh, and then he'd get a couple hours, try to get a couple hours of sleep and go back to working the next day. So, yeah, he uh, famously uh, maxed out all of his credit cards, borrowed $3,000 from his parents, and sold off a bunch of his comic books to finance making this movie. So this was like, this was Kevin Smith betting the farm uh, and not knowing any better. And obviously it worked out for him. But it definitely has that feel. Because you're right, there's a lot of the acting in this does feel a little wooden and a little stilted because they're, they're young actors and a lot of them are coming off of, you know, never really acting in films before just on stage. Um, so that, that can be a little bit rough, but I tell you what, one of the things that I do really like about this movie is the way the dialogue is written, both feels realistic and also feels fake. It's kind of Quentin Tarantino like where, well,
0: I actually, I had another analogy because, okay, When the video game, the video store guy is talking, it -hmm. sounds like any minute he's going to talk about going down to the shore buying his Motley Crue t-shirts and his bitching Camaro. I feel like they're going to break into a dead milkman song any minute.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, And I'm sure a lot of that was like influences of the music and and movies that Kevin Smith watched. Um, Yeah. Because early, especially early on in his career, he was very strict about like, look, read the words that are on the page. Um, I love his, his quote, uh, from an interview he did. I think it was after, I can't remember what, what he was talking about, but basically he was working with Affleck and I think it was on Chasing Amy, which I am pretty sure came out before Goodwill Hunting, right? Cause Chasing Amy was 97. was Goodwill Hunting 98.
0: I think so. Um,
1: um, but it was Affleck trying to, uh, the, the, the quote from Kevin Smith was Affleck kept trying to um, ad-lib. Flex. And basically, Kevin Smith said, look, if you want to write your own movie, why don't you just go do that? And he's like, so he did. And then he won an Oscar for it. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, yeah, so he was he was very much like, look, just read what I write. And uh, and so you get a little bit of that. I did notice, though, this watch through, and I don't know if I just never really paid attention to it before or what, there were a lot of moments, a lot of scenes that were a single take with amazing amounts of dialogue in it.
0: like Mm -hmm.
1: Minutes worth of take going at once. And it's just a steady, a static shot of two people talking, but to memorize and deliver all of that dialogue in a single take like that's pretty impressive, even for, uh, for young, you know, especially for young actors. Um, yeah, so
0: Yeah, their their inexperience the inexperience showed most when they were showing the weird characters in the store. Like <laughs> the people who were oh yeah, the milk the milk lady or the guy with the eggs that he was bundling himself with or whatever. Those are those are that's when the the bad makeup and young people trying to be old makeup yep. really, really showed. The the core four or five though, they were pretty solid actors and uh, when it's all said and done, they they did a jo- they did the job of telling the story that they were going to tell.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and definitely all those side characters were like you know friends and family and people that he would just pull in off the street. I know uh, the milkmaid um, who was going mm-hmm. through all the gallons of milk. That's actually Kevin Smith's mother. Um, mm-hmm. They had to call her in at like three a.m. because the the actress that was supposed to be the milkmaid just didn't show up. Um, the guy with the eggs, I love him. That's Walt Flanagan, who has been in, uh, I think, every production that Kevin Smith has done since then in like some small role. And he was also part of Comic Book Men. Um, oh, so he's, he's, he's uh, he is to Kevin Smith that Bruce Campbell is to Sam Raimi? Kind of. There's a few people like that, and, and Flanagan is one of them. Um, he, he is, if you remember in any of the other Kevin Smith movies where there's a the guy that says, tell him Steve Dave, that's yeah, Walt mm-hmm. Flanagan. Um, okay. He's like four characters in this movie because he's the, the guy with the eggs. He's one of the people that's in the, the group that go through the anti-smoking ra- uh, rant from the chewing gum salesman. Mm-hmm. Um, he's actually the one that goes up afterwards. After all of that happens and they're pelting him with cigarettes, And he goes up and buys a pack of cigarettes and leaves. Um, so it's like the same guy. They would just put a wig on him or they'd, they'd have him in a hood and so you couldn't see his face. Uh, kind of doing a little uh, Sam Raimi fake shemp uh, action going on. <laughs> Um, but you know, when you're making a movie for 27 grand, that's what's going to happen. Uh, that's also actually why the movies in black and white, um, is a budget thing. They didn't want, they didn't have the money for enough lighting to be able to have cohesive. It was going to be a ton more work to match all the color temperature because they had just a mishmash of lighting. So they just decided to shoot it in black and white and not deal with that. And it was cheaper.
0: It, yeah, it also makes sense because it's also more expensive to process color stock than mm-hmm. it is to process black and white stock.
1: So it ended up being cheaper, and I think the movie's better for that. I think the there, there's something about the feel of this movie in black and white. And I know one of the special thanks was Jim Jarmusch, and it kind of felt like something Jarmusch would maybe make, um, or or at least in that kind of a style. When it when it's in black and white, sort of feels like um, oh. Uh, like his coffee and cigarettes vignettes. I don't know if you've mm, ever seen yep. those, yep, but like, I have. It, it gives that feel. I did like, this was another great, I Kevin Smith is a wonderful interview and he's got endless quotes and endless stories. His podcast is great. Um, I've enjoyed that over the years, but he had uh, one where one of the first reviews of clerks, the reviewer said that the black and white film made it feel like you were watching this movie through the store's security cameras. And so he latched onto that. So from then on, anybody that asked him about it, that was what he would say. Is, yeah, we, we, we shot it in black and white. So it looked like the security cameras. And like, I just love I love that he would do that. Like, it's such a yeah. Kevin Smith thing to do. Um,
0: yeah, no, it, it was it, the 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 way the movie was shot showed that he was a new filmmaker. I mean, there's no question he wasn't hiding the fact he was a new filmmaker. Mm-hmm. But they also showed that he kind of had an idea of what he wanted to do and that if he'd had more money, more time, whatever, all the things more of that he got later, he was going to be a competent storyteller and director.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was the thing. He knew how to tell a story. The technical aspects of the filmmaking are pretty amateur, right? There's no, there's hardly any movement of the camera whatsoever. It's almost all static locked off shots, maybe a dolly pan, um, you know, a pan here or there, but he doesn't, uh, that's not his style. He, he's sort of like, a. again, his writing style, especially this watch through kind of reminded me of Tarantino with just a lot of people talking and talking Mm -hmm. constantly and having conversations like Tarantino has this way, and and Smith does too, of writing conversations where, again, it both feels like a conversation that I have had before, and also is like, yeah, but people don't actually talk that way, and it's weird to have <laughs> that that both happening at the same time. But like this movie has the great conversation about the second Death Star that uh, just cracks me up because that's just a pop culture like nerd discussion that I, any of us that are are nerds like that have had a discussion similar to that at some point. Um, yeah. And, and the way that it ends is my favorite part where the, the guy like overhears it and just walks up. Well, you know, I'm a contractor and.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's kind of funny because it reminded me of the, uh, greatest movie of all time conversation from the empire records
1: where, uh, I think it is empire records
0: where they yell, where they shout out evil dead Two. um, Jack Black shout, Jack Black is the guy who's like Evil Dead 2 no question
1: was it was that Empire Records or was that um, uh, High was, Fidelity half, that's high the fidelity one
0: or, but, yeah it's High Fidelity yeah, yeah. so he kind of reminded me of that where if you know what they're talking about you laugh if you don't you're just sitting there waiting for it to end
1: mm-hmm. yeah but also like so I have been a convenience store clerk um and and I've worked in a video store too actually um And so I can kind of like for me, I can kind of latch on to some of this, like that feeling of, you know, this job would be great if it weren't for the customers type of thing or, uh, you know, all of that kind of stuff. Like I get that feeling. This was just I think part of what made this resonate with so many people was the time that it came out and the fact that a lot of people wanted to be like you want if you did that job, you wanted to be Randall. You wanted to be yeah. the one who could do that, but more more of us were a Dante uh, and just sort of took it and didn't deal with it, or de- you know dealt with it that way. And that's that's kind of a, a good way to make something that has an audience. And it's funny because this movie almost didn't get bought and distributed because companies didn't think that it had it had an audience that nobody would want to see this. But I disagree in that i think it has a a broader audience because of a lot of people that have been been those characters and so you sort of see you see yourself in them and it's like i don't want to be dante but dante's the the better person um kind of barely he he, yeah he has his flaws for sure um uh, but but then randall is a much more a much freer person he's just also a dick and yeah,
0: well, it it really is. It goes back to the Charlie Brown It's Charlie Brown and Linus and Linus yeah. happens to be a lot more vulgar.
1: Yeah.
0: And, and Charlie Brown's the guy who's always following the rules and, you know, gets mad at his girlfriend when she gives her number and then gives the other number. Yeah. So, I mean, it very much is a peanuts it, and there, it's a locked off shop. People sitting and leaning against the wall talking. It's, it's peanuts.
1: Yeah. And you could definitely tell. You could definitely tell the amateur filmmaking part of it when they have the fight at the end when he just runs in because it just that looks like something I would have shot uh, back (laughs) a few years later. Like and part of it is he's filming it in the store he works in. So they can only mess up so much stuff that they then have to clean up that night. Um, Yeah. But yeah, I the Peanuts is such a good comparison and I never thought about it that way before but you're very very right there and I think that's kind of kind of cool the the story in this is weird because again as we said said it's not really like a you know an act one act two act three narrative story it's just a day in the life of this guy it just happens to be a day where some weird stuff happens like you have the the moment where the old man comes in and asks to use the restroom mm-hmm. and then you forget about him completely. Like I come the, especially the first time I saw this, I completely forgot that that guy went in to use the bathroom because it, you know, like other scenes in this where people come and go, you just figure he did his thing and left. Um, so to have that kind of called back at the end in granted a very gruesome way. Um, but also yeah. like gruesome, but absurdly funny at the same time, like the, com- so here's, okay, go ahead.
0: Go ahead. Finish your, finish your thought. And I'll tell, i tell you what I've,
1: I was just going to say the 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 sharp cut to the wide shot with the gurney and the sheet over the body <laughs> is so absurd and I can't help but laugh every time because you just it's it's so dumb but it's it's funny. So so
0: this, that scene that whole last third no third quarter of the film where that story is unfolding is the exact reason why I'm glad I saw it now because I think if I saw it when I was in college I might have been far more down on it. I might have thought it was in bad taste, I might have not really liked it. My sense of humor has changed immensely sure. over the course of my life and especially having since I've having worked in and around jails and prisons my entire career, you get a little bit dark with your humor sometimes. Yeah. And I think that seeing it now I appreciate the humor of it even though the whole time i'm going oh man that's just rough
1: (laughs) it really is that's
0: yeah how do you take your 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 mildly paced comedy and make the pinnacle of your story that moment because that's really what kind of the the climax of the film
1: yeah it it really is and interestingly the original ending have you heard about the original ending of this at all
0: Mm -mm, i have not
1: so he shot the film and it was, you know, the 27,000, he shot an ending and then he also had, um, and then what he did was, uh, at the time you could get into the independent film, um, oh, I can't think it's IFFM or something like that, but basically it was independent film market. And so the, the genesis of the movie clerks centers around, uh, Kevin Smith had gone, he lived in New Jersey, he went up to New York. All the time, and we'll watch these movies at these little art houses. He saw Richard Linkletter's uh, Slacker, and he was like, "I want to make. I want to do that." And so, using the same kind of process that Slacker went through, he made his movie. He got it shown, and then uh, distributors would would pick it up and buy it. And that's how it ended up at uh, Sundance Film Festival and eventually Cannes Film Festival. The original ending that he had pre like wide release. after Randall leaves the the quick stop for the night, Dante goes back behind the counter. He's getting ready to close up and somebody comes in, holds up the quick stop, shoots him in the chest and he dies. And that's how the movie ended. And it was one of those, and it it was a, it was a situation where it wasn't so much that Kevin Smith wanted like this dour ending. He just didn't know how to end the movie. So that Mm -hmm. was kind of his way out. And I get it. Endings are hard. Like they're the most difficult part of writing.
0: just ask Timothy uh Tim Burton.
1: Yeah. Tim Burton. I would argue
0: the last ten minutes of almost every of his, every one of his movies is not great.
1: I mean, there's a reason why Monty Python had and now for something completely different. That was just their way to get out mm-hmm. of a skit. They could just throw that up and move on. So he yep. didn't that was the ending, and one of the people working at one one of the companies, I I think it ended up being Miramax who bought it and to distribute it, was like how about we just end the movie when Randall leaves and kind of end it right there. And so they did that and it makes for a better ending in my opinion, because Mm -hmm. um, while there is some kind of uh, I don't want to say catharsis, but there's some sort of like, I don't know, there's something about that ending where like, he's not even supposed to be there that day, but it's such a downer and such a dour ending that having him get shot was, was bad. So I kind of like how they ended it. Um, I'm trying to think where I was going with this, but, but that was, that was how it originally ended was, was Dante dying. Um, so um, it
0: wouldn't have been as successful. It, no. definitely, it definitely would not have worked as well.
1: No. And I think even Kevin Smith, you know, later said, like, I'm really glad the, I know what it was. Uh, Miramax <laughs> originally told him, look, you can keep that ending. We're not going to force you to change it, which is for Miramax in the nineties was a big thing. Um, because the the guy that ran Miramax was famous for you know making edits to movies without telling the filmmaker before distributing them, um, but uh, they told him basically, "Look, well, you can leave it as is." But then he decided to change it anyway, and they were they were happy that he did. And yeah, Kevin Smith's career is happy that he did. Because, I was gonna say Kevin Smith's wallets happy that he did. Oh, big time! Um, yeah, this movie so a twenty seven thousand dollar budget. Miramax bought the the distribution rights for two hundred and twenty seven thousand. Wow! It ended up making in theaters about three million dollars. So, a uh, pretty good investment all around. Um, and obviously, it spawned a almost thirty year career now for Kevin Smith, who repeatedly has said uh, that he is incredibly lucky. And I mentioned the uh, the independent film kind of. Um, not festival, but it was like independent film factory market or something, but he, he got yeah. it played there and it was, it happened to be that one person went and saw it cause he had like a terrible time slot. It was like a Sunday at 11am and one person just happened to go see it and fell in love with it. And that's kind of how things got started. It was him calling one person and playing the phone game and eventually yeah. it got bought. Um, but, you know, it's funny
0: because the, 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 from about 90, I'd say 93, 94 to 98, 99, there were a lot of these innovative, low budget, mid budget kind of movies that were coming out of Sundance and out of these film festivals. Mm-hmm. And what's really interesting is that doesn't happen anymore. You can't no. do that. That, that kind of filmmaking and marketing puts you directly on Netflix or Amazon Prime now. You can't get my big Back Greek wedding into a movie theater anymore. Cause it's filled with Marvel films and DC films and huge million dollar budget films.
1: Yeah. Independent film. This is, this was in the heyday of truly independent filmmaking. This was slacker was brought up a lot. And when I was doing some, some reading about this movie, um, cause uh, you know, you had your R- Richard Linklater's, your Jim Jeremouche, Kevin Smith, they were truly independent filmmaking. Yeah, Um, which Mm -hmm. just doesn't exist anymore. Independent films now have, you know, multi-million dollar budgets. And if they're not uh, getting played in art house theaters, you're right. They're going, a lot of that stuff is direct to your streaming services. I'm glad that there's still, some of that is still getting made, but I do miss some of this kind of filmmaking, some of this stuff where it was, it's just that very simple stuff. There is a little bit of it happening on, um, some platforms uh but it's just it doesn't have the distribution um yeah the same way for
0: instance for instance something like 28 days later might not occur if it was made today
1: that's a good point yeah uh even with an established name like danny boyle like Mm -hmm. that's that is a good one um and and it's sad because we need stuff like that i love the marvel movies i love your big budget action stuff um because I, i have fun with it but I want the balance of that. Uh, you know. Yeah. I want to be able to go to a theater and see something like Knives Out, which mm-hmm. you know, that's closer to what independent film is like now. It's a smaller budget. It has an amazing cast, but it's not this big action piece where, you know, budget is in the hundreds of millions. Um mm-hmm. but I want to be able to go to theater and see that and, and have that be a wide release thing. Um so I'm kind of I, I long for that to happen again, and I'm sad. I'm. It's sad to think that we probably won't ever really get back to that as theaters are becoming less and less prevalent overall. And, and also,
0: I, I think another word for other than prevalent is relevant.
1: Yeah. Because
0: uh, there are so many other ways now for film companies, not the makers, the companies to make money from distribution now.
1: Yeah, and that's really what it comes down to is it's the money-making part of it. Um, yeah, it's, it's unfortunate things change. Uh, The funny part about that is it's so much cheaper and easier to make a film like clerks now than it was in 93 when he was making it. I mean, they, so Kevin Smith met Scott Mosier at the Vancouver film school, um, where he went for like four months or something. But Scott Mosher was, has been his producer on everything, I think, until the Jay and Silent Bob reboot. Um, and one of the things they did when they when they were getting started with Clerks was they didn't want to hire a really well known director of photography or or somebody. They they were worried about who they would hire because they didn't know anything, and they were like Mosher was worried. Look, we get somebody who's a veteran; they're gonna take over the film. So they ended up hiring like a 19-year-old kid to do their uh, photography. And they – what was it? I think it was $1,000 a week for the camera setup and everything. Um, And they shot for 21 straight days in the store. And everything takes place inside that store. So, I mean, just maximizing how much money they're spending.
0: Yeah, well, it almost almost could make it into a stage play too then because really – Mm-hmm. Everything that of really any merit takes place either in the set, which could be the stores or yep. off camera, which could still be taken care of in the stores.
1: Yeah, um, because the only scenes that took place away from the quick stop were the funeral scene, which we never see the and, inside of. Um, yep.
0: And hockey on top of the building.
1: Yeah, on that's right. On top of the building. So, you know. Uh, yeah, it, it's one of those, well, I guess the
0: phone, the phone call at the beginning, but that doesn't count.
1: Oh uh, yeah. But that's, that could be any, you could make up like a side room type of deal for that. Yeah. yeah. Um, what's amazing is that this tiny little movie spawned not only, uh, Kevin Smith's career, but it also had comic books based around it. There was an animated series, um, on ABC that ran for a season. Which is uh, so
0: funny when you think about who owns ABC and the language and content
1: of this that those movie.
0: Talk about! I yeah. know.
1: Uh, oh, that was another thing. So the movie is rated R, obviously. Uh, its original rating by the MPAA uh, was an NC-17, which is interesting in a movie that has no, virtually no violence, no nudity. It's just language, and just well, language as
0: with... Didn't that happen with uh, what's it, the aristocrats?
1: The aristocrats did get an NC-17 just for language. Yeah. Um, yeah. Probably just for Bob Saget's segment alone. Actually, <laughs> <laughs> <sighs> That one was, that was something else. Um, but I
0: watched that movie about once every two years to make sure I still feel something. <laughs> because if I don't feel something. I know my, my soul is dead.
1: Yep. That's, that's, uh, that's very accurate. Um, yeah, it so the movie got an NC seventeen and uh and Miramax um hired one of the lawyers, actually was on O. J. Simpson's team, uh, to argue and got the MPAA to reduce it to an R without having to make any cuts to the movie. Wow. Which is crazy. Funny how funny how you mentioned without making any cuts when that was kind of what OJ was yeah. in trouble for. <laughs> Um, but yeah, it's, it's pretty impressive actually that, uh, again, that, that Miramax, you know, distributed the movie without making any changes to the structure. I think all they did was Mm -hmm. they punched up the music a little bit, which the music in this is is a fun, like, uh, soundtrack of some nineties kind of alternative stuff.
0: Yeah. It's a romp down mid nineties, early to mid nineties, uh, alternative rock.
1: You know, with some, uh, what do you got there? Um, girls against boys, Alice in Chains, um, Oh, what was the other one? Bad Religion um, yep. it has a song in there, Stabbing Westward, which I'd forgotten. That's early Stabbing Westward, too. Yep. Um, the Alice in Chains one is uh, the one that I always forget. And then as soon as I hear it in the movie, I'm like, oh, that's right. I forgot they put that in here. Um, yeah, didn't
0: they appear in singles that same year?
1: Yes, I think so. And then Soul Asylum also did a song on here. And uh, Kevin Smith directed the music video for that song uh, no. as well
0: probably paid for the the licensing to use it in the film by doing the directing. Probably,
1: yeah. Um, I think actually the license fees for all the music that Miramax ended up putting in uh, was larger than the budget of the actual film when they shot it. (laughs) So, you know. And it's funny uh, because
0: it'd be even larger now because when they got those people, they weren't who they are. Alice in Chains was not Alice in Chains when they made the movie in 94. No, not at all.
1: Um, So... I mentioned how you know a lot of people identify with Dante and Randall. Um, you got the birth of Jay and Silent Bob, which originally Kevin Smith wrote the character of Randall for himself, uh, but then realized that probably having a better actor is a good idea. Uh, and so ended up putting himself on screen. And then Jay likes to say that he made himself Silent Bob so that he didn't have to, any lines to remember. Um, and... This movie started Jay and Silent Bob. It also started the whole Silent Bob says, like, one thing in a movie, which originally wasn't Mm -hmm. even his. That line was not Silent Bob's in the script. It was Jay's. But Jason Mewes couldn't deliver it. Like, he just was having too much trouble. And he's, like, Mewes in this movie is absolutely the amateur, no acting experience guy you can tell. Because he's fumbling and flubbing his lines a lot and all of that. He just, he was, you know, a friend of Kevin Smith's from when they were teenagers. And, uh, so that line was supposed to be Jay's, and he couldn't do it. So Kevin Smith ended up doing it. And that started that kind of whole, like silent Bob has one salient quote in every movie. And I like that. Yeah. Um, but it's a fun little trope. There's a lot of running gags and almost all of them in, in Kevin Smith movies started here. 30, the number 37 started because of this movie, uh, And so now whenever you see, like you see the number 37 in everything as a reference to this, um, the, uh, which
0: is funny because 47 is the thing that Star Trek does all the time. That's
1: right. Um, you got, uh, some of the other like gags in this. I love the sign on the register. If you plan to shoplift, please tell us. (laughs) (laughs) Or yes, I assure you we're open. Uh, yes, we're open. Like that, there's some variation of that outside of Quick Stop and all of Kevin Smith's movies, and the sign always changes to be like more and more of, yes, we are actually open, which <laughs> that was a clever trick because they had to shoot everything at night. Um, they couldn't shoot during the day, so uh, that was a, a, a clever way to write into the script that there was gum jammed in the lock so he couldn't open the shutters so they can shoot everything at night and you don't have to worry about the lighting, which I thought was nice. kind of yeah. Um, and it, so it gives you a good narrative reason for it and it keeps everything consistent. And, uh, but yeah, I love that. And he's got a, and then the the running joke, you know, what, what smells like shoe polish throughout the whole yep. movie? Um, mm-hmm. a lot of, lot of callback lines, savage, you know, nothing, bunch of savages in this town. Uh, mm-hmm. I, he says, I'm not supposed to be here today. I think five times yeah. throughout the movie. Um, there's a lot of, but there's also like some really good moments. Of, was, it, was there a Will Was there a Wilhelm scream in there? <sighs> if there was, I think it was. Was it in the hockey scene? Uh huh. I think there might have been. I mean, probably. Like, you know, the it's really only been in probably the last ten years where that's really become the thing. Where now I I get annoyed by it.
0: Yeah. Um, oh, well, maybe maybe it wasn't. I don't know. I,
1: I watched I watched a lot this week and. <laughs>
0: One of the things I watched was this thing called uh, Hollywood... Let's see, what is it? Versus the Hollywood Tropes. It's on Netflix, and they go hmm. through all the tropes. They spend a lot of time talking about the Wilhelm scream.
1: Oh, okay. It could been. It's they're, worth watching. I'll check that out for sure. Uh, but there might have been one in there. I, it's hard to say. I don't, I don't remember it, um, but yeah. if it was going to be anywhere, it was going to be in that hockey scene. Um, yeah. Also, did you notice that the... Okay, so Scott Mosher I mentioned was a producer. Another one of those people that would they would pull in for like little bit parts. He's the guy that has the wool jacket and the beard, who's kind of a man child. He's sort of yes. That's mm-hmm. Scott. That's Scott Mosher. But it's also the same guy that's yelling at him while he's playing hockey, standing on the ladder, and then jumps into the hockey game. That's also Scott Mosher. He just shaved his beard and did that part. <laughs> so he got to he got to play two different characters. Uh, in that, in fact, in one shot, because when they, when uh, was it Dante and that dude looked down at the store, um, and the person looking up at them asked if they're open. You see the other Scott mm-hmm. Mosier character in that shot looking up at him. and so I forgot. So, question:
0: Would you would you shave your beard to play two parts? Uh no. In a twenty seven thousand dollars film, your friend was making
1: at this at this stage. No, if the beard was shorter, maybe maybe <laughs> but this this took too long to grow this this beard took like it would take me a year or two to get back to this that's not
0: a covid beard that's a that's a life beard
1: yeah, this started in like twenty fifteen so this yeah. went pre covid but there are some there are some great like moments of character in this that I actually really like um I like how Randall for all of his you know Randallness has that moment with Caitlin towards the end where he's just like, you break his heart and I'll kill you. Like he's, he is fiercely loyal to his friend Dante, regardless of all the crap that goes on and kind of how he acts towards him. And I kind of like, again, that's, I think what makes they're not, they're not perfect people, but they're, they're relatable people. Yeah. And I appreciate that in a movie. I, I, I want characters that I want to like the characters and, you know, Randall is sometimes hard to like um, and Dante They all too. are hard to
0: like sometimes.
1: Yeah, but they're also I, – I just find them to be relatable. Like I feel like I know people like them. So that can help sometimes if they're not as likable, if I can at least find them relatable but a little bit unlikable as opposed to just irredeemable.
0: Yeah. I think that the, uh, his, 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 I'll break your heart if you, or I'll kill you if you break his heart, Kaline, kind of is like a brother who's allowed yeah. to pants and he's his, his, his sibling. Mm-hmm. But if anyone outside that circle comes in, then all bets are
1: off. Exactly. Uh, what, how does he phrase it? Territoriality. He was mine first. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, all the, like the side characters are, are zany, right? The, you yeah. know. Um, and they're meant to be like they're just it, the movie's really meant to just be Dante Randall, um, Veronica, Caitlin, and then just a bunch of random people. Now Dante, as we mentioned, isn't a perfect person either because honestly, he's trying to have his cake and eat it too. And I didn't realize how much that would kind of annoy me this watch through the yeah. the whole thing with Veronica and. Like, I've always known that part of the movie, but it just, for some reason, it hit me different this time around. Like, oh, man, Dante, that's, that's not cool. That's like, that's not how you treat people. So, you know, there is that. But, again, relatable. Um, he's pining for something that he, that he thinks he wants. Uh, his memory of what his relationship was like with Caitlin, even though the reality of it is considerably worse, obviously, if she cheated on him all the time and now he's kind of doing the same thing so you know it's it is what it is it's also a, a bit of a product of its time like it, kind of uh mentalities of things are different and i think even kevin smith would probably say that like the way he wrote the characters might be different than how he would write them today so i would hope so i know i i did you see the jane silent bob reboot no, the last one I watched was the Strikes Back, okay, so Strikes Back was kind of the end of the interconnected stories for a while um and then he went on and did uh he did quite a few different movies um jersey girl um oh uh cop out um I made a couple of horror movies red state and uh Tusk, which is yep. Very weird um, yoga hosers. And then he went back and he did the Jay and Silent Bob reboot, which honestly, it's not a perfect movie, but it's a ton of fun. It's very fan servicey. It's got a ton of cameos, much like Jay and Silent Bob Strikes Back did, uh, but even more. Um, it sort of tells the same story. Jay and Silent Bob have to actually are going to Hollywood to stop a movie being made about Bluntman and Chronic again. Um, it's very self-aware, but you can see the change in Kevin Smith over the years, um, in kind of what he's putting on screen. And another part of that was, uh, he had a heart attack on stage, uh, like the year before they started making the Jane's Highland Pop reboot. Um, and that changed a lot of his perspective on things. So, yeah, I think that, uh, a you know present day Kevin Smith while he's definitely still pr- very proud of what he made he probably would would change a few aspects of it um which is fine like it's a, it's good growth i do put this as uh, like higher on my end of kevin smith movies i think this one slots up there i don't like it as much as dogma i think dogma for me is still my favorite kevin smith film um, of the ones i've seen i probably agree with you there's something about kind of the the irreverent humor yet comes from a place of like only somebody who was raised Catholic is going to write a movie like that. Um, yeah. And I covered it on this show a while back with um, Stephen and Ashley from Horseshoes and Hand Grenades and both of them had a very um, religious upbringing so they were not allowed to see that movie growing up. And they both agreed that it's not, it's it's irreverent but it also has like a, a, a certain um, honor towards all the subject matter as well, which I is yeah. I think what well, I appreciate. It's like Book of Mormon and the about. musical.
0: Yeah. It's like Book of Mormon the musical. It's completely irreverent and kind of out of bounds. But it's also got a heart to it mm-hmm. that if you can kind of sit through the stuff that makes you squirm, you'll end up feeling pretty good about life when you're done.
1: Yeah. And I, I think that's what Kevin Smith does really well is he, all his stuff has like a heart to it because he himself is just such a, like a warm and friendly person. He just seems like the, this, this guy that you just want to hang out with, um, to me anyway. And so, and and I think a lot of that comes across in his writing. I think I, I made the comparison to Tarantino earlier and I feel like, like Kevin Smith's dialogue is like the, the flip side of the coin of a Tarantino dialogue where it's structured yeah. very similarly, but where Tarantino's writes a lot darker. Um, Kevin Smith's stuff has always got kind of a, a playful edge to it.
0: So I think we've come to the conclusion that that Kevin Smith is if Reservoir Dogs cross paths with your good man, Charlie Brown.
1: Yeah, that's <laughs> that's disturbingly accurate, and I like it. Um, you're
0: you're a good you're a good man, Mister Pink.
1: <laughs> Not oh, I want to see that now. I want to I want a Kevin Smith rewrite of Reservoir Dogs. <laughs> Boy, I I honestly can't tell you how much I want to see that. Um, <laughs> yeah,
0: Charles Schultz and Quentin Tarantino. Never thought I'd put those two people in a sentence together.
1: <laughs> no, no, two two uh, very different things, but wow, could that work? Um, yeah, I just, there's, there's just a charm about clerks for me. Um, now you had said, uh, before we got started, um, that you had some things you really liked about it and some things you really didn't like about it. Um, what, what were some of the things that, that didn't land for you that you just didn't care for?
0: Okay. So overall, the whole thing leads to that very dour kind of ending where, there's this little glimmer of hope between the two friends, but everything else is pretty rotten. Mm-hmm. I mean, the girl is traumatized. The dude is dead. You know, things aren't things aren't great. Uh, relationships are in shambles except for him and his friend. And when you step back a little bit, and you realize these people lead miserable lives. And we just got to kind of peek in on it. That didn't sit very well because there was I'm like, what's the point of the film? Why is he telling the story? Because that's always what I try to ask is why mm-hmm. was this movie made? And now thinking about it, I'm probably just was cathartic for him to tell the story, oh. kind of get out all the things that he went through while working in this in this field. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that makes sense. But when I say I didn't, it's, it's weird because I stood up and I told my wife, the first thing I said was, I don't know if I could actually love a movie and hate a movie at the same time. <laughs> but I do with this one because there are things I absolutely think are genius and it lead to him being who he is now and what he's doing now. At the same time, I look at it and go, like I said, if I'd seen this in 94, I don't know if I would have liked it because I don't have the appreciation and sensibility for this type of filmmaking and this type of humor where yeah. you're taking sometimes the uncomfortable aspects of humanity and making it humorous. And I've complained about like the suicide movie, the Suicide Squad movie, where they take shock factor and mm-hmm. try to make it pass it off as funny. Uh, this did that a little bit, but at least the characters were more likable. Everyone in the suicide squad is absolutely atrocious human beings. Mm-hmm. And when you're trying to pass off atrocious human beings doing atrocious things as funny, it doesn't land with me. This is a better example of that, where it works, does work. But at the same time, like I said, I I, I can't – if you asked me right now, I'd tell you I love it. If you asked me in 36 seconds, I'd probably tell you that I don't love it. <laughs> see, well, I think it would be better if I said 37 seconds. See, Yeah
1: damn it. I missed a joke. Well, you were close. You were close. Um, (laughs) And, and, but I think, I think that as art, that's a good thing because it makes you like it, it has now made an impression on you. And I kind of like that, that it can go either way for you. Um, I love the movie, but I understand completely the, the sentiment of like, yeah, man, I don't, I don't know if I can like this movie. Like, because again, it's, it's, Relatable people, but they're not good people, and they're going through it's just a day in the life of this guy. Mm-hmm. And he doesn't, he's not getting anywhere, and he feels like he's not getting anywhere because of outside forces. And it's really a lot of himself, and it is semi autobiographical um, in nature. Kevin Smith was writing based on his own uh, experiences, so yeah, I'm sure there was some catharsis in there of like him. Being that age, working that job, not really having a direction, and he was able to pull himself out of it and bet the farm on himself, and he he hit a home run, um, and you know, grew this career for the last, I think it's now twenty nine years or something like that uh, since yeah, or what is it twenty twenty eight years ago this movie came out, so, it, it there there's some catharsis there, but it's also it does end on a downer. It does kind of, and, and it's, it's a downer that you don't really see coming, I think is probably also part of it. Like it does kind of hit you a little bit out of nowhere because everything's been building and it's not a movie that has, uh, again, that kind of structure where you're sort of anticipating something going wrong. And so it keeps building and building and building. And then we get that. And that's the, uh, well, yeah, it's because the lights don't work back there. Um, yeah,
0: have you seen Have you seen SLC Punk?
1: I have not. That is actually on my list to do. Um, I have another friend of mine who, when when they found out about that, uh, nearly lost their mind that I hadn't seen SLC Punk. Okay,
0: when when you th- watch, and, and I know, I don't know when you're going to do it, and I don't know if you're going to remember to do this, but when you watch LC SLC Punk, think about this movie because the the kind of the broadside. Change of tone happens mm-hmm. in that movie as well. Okay, and it, it 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 actually makes me not want to go back and revisit that movie. Uh, and if I do, I have to stop at a certain point because it's got one tone, and then something else happens, and it goes completely in a different direction, and it kind of hurts. Hmm.
1: Okay, <clears throat> I will I will look for that because I definitely have it on my list to do uh, sometime soon, actually. And that was only a couple years after that was. SLC Punk is 1998, so yeah. hmm. I will look for that. Yeah, it. I can definitely see where where that tone change in this is weird, and and it dealing with death too. I think because yeah. we hadn't really had anything to that extreme. I mean, the worst we got was the guy at the beginning trying to scare everybody about smoking, which mm-hmm. is funny uh, because there's two moments in this movie. One was that that almost got it not picked up by Miramax. Um, I have purposely not spoken the name of the head of Miramax, but every, everybody yeah, watching I this appreci- probably I knows. I appreciate that. He apparently did not like that part of the movie the first time he watched it, um, and it took some of his underlings to like convince him to watch through uh, the second time before um, they finally greenlit and the, the buying of it and picked it up. But um the other one was uh, the same two guys that worked for Miramax also wanted to make sure that the the um, in a row line got heard because that was the one that, that just killed them and they they're like this movie needs that's one of the funniest things I've ever heard so it's it's funny that both of those hinged on like one guy um yeah and that oh that was another thing so Kevin Smith has, uh, since all of the, the stuff has gone on with that person. Um, Kevin Smith has acknowledged, like, yeah, you know, uh, the most of my career is owed to, to that. And so what he has done apparently is residuals that he's now getting for any of his movies that were distributed by Miramax. Um, he's donating to women. Oh, that's with, awesome. I think it's women in film or women in media or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, because, like he feels bad you know obviously he feels bad that that all that was going on while he was being very successful so yeah but that that there again is that that's that kevin smith thing where i talk about like he just seems like the kind of person you would want to be around every interview you see with him every time you hear him talk he just he's always kevin smith it never feels yeah. to me it never feels like he's putting on any kind of a persona it's just that's the dude he is he's and he Just knows how lucky he is that he is still in that industry, able to do what he's doing and have what he's what he's got, based on where he started, which was a twenty seven thousand dollars movie where he maxed out all his credit cards. That's the scary one. And
0: and you're right, because he was Kevin Smith even when he was playing the corner in Daredevil.
1: Yep. Oh yeah, yeah. When he was doing that, uh, what was another one? Um, Live Free or Die Hard. He played a very similar character in that. Still, always Kevin Smith. Yep, which is it why it for bombs. Will
0: Smith. It can work for him.
1: Yeah, that's true. That is very true. Um, so this movie does, strangely had a number of things to clip, but they weren't like, I don't know. It's 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 weird. I felt I, I thought I was going to have more more things I wanted to record and have uh, at the ready for a soundboard at some point, point. and I realized that no, nah, not all of them. Although um, I have a few things if you want to hear them. Sure. Let's do it. Uh, this one, I I think this is the only, this might be the only J line I have, by the way. So I mentioned how Jason Mewes in this movie felt very amateur, um, very rough. If you look at him now and you see the stuff he is doing nowadays, it's amazing how far that guy has come in terms of his acting. And, uh, and then you take into account all the personal problems he's had over the years. Um, with drugs and addiction and, and things. It's amazing uh, how far he's come from the kid in this movie because he was, like, 19 when they made this. Um, but this... I just loved this exchange. Hey,
0: are there any balls down there? About the biggest pair you ever seen, Diggleberry.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Jay cracked me up throughout the whole thing. Um, uh, What was... Oh, um this one. This job would be great if it wasn't for the f***ing customers. I will say... I have said that several times when I was working in convenience stores.
0: I've said so. that a lot just in general.
1: Yeah, fair. Like
0: <laughs> even when I'm a customer somewhere.
1: Uh, sometimes, yeah, uh, about myself I, I feel that way. So, <laughs> uh, The one Silent Bob line in the movie. You
0: know, there's a million fine-looking women in the world, dude, but they don't all bring you lasagna at work. Most of them just cheat on you.
1: It's true. I mean, you get yeah. somebody that will bring you lasagna at work keeper um what was this
0: sometimes you gotta let those hard to reach chips go
1: that felt like a very philosophical line <laughs> gotta let yeah. those hard to reach chips go that that was again one of those things where it just it feels like little vignettes like somebody thought oh this would be a fun little gag to have on screen
0: yeah i could see keller and Hobbes pulling that
1: yeah yes oh man that's a good one too you are uh, you are good at that at, uh, at these analogies I'll tell you what um, Randall uh, talking to Caitlin
0: oh hey Caitlin break his heart again this time and I'll kill you nothing personal
1: that was that was the moment where you're like okay all right I I don't hate Randall he's yeah. he's still not a great guy uh, and he treats customers really poorly although some of them deserve it uh, I did the the scene with him where he's reading the newspaper just sitting on the counter and the lady's asking him about the two different movies and then she does the whole turnaround and ask him again and uh cracked me up because of his reaction to it. And I don't appreciate your ruse. And she's just flabbergasted. <laughs> um
0: My favorite my favorite part of the film, I think, was the vignette where they're talking about stupid questions. Like the Yes the montage of dumb questions.
1: Yep. Uh that was that was great. There was that and then the scene where he's got a, where he's ordering the movies. Um, yeah. And the funny thing about that is that Jeff Anderson, uh, who played Randall refused to read those titles. If that woman and the child were in the room. So that's why the shot starts out a little wider and then cuts in, zooms in closer. He refused to read any of those while they were in the room. He, the, so they had to be out of the, out of there. He did all of that. And then they cut <laughs> shot the coverage. Um, and those those just get progressively more and more ridiculous and I can't help yeah. but laugh at them. They're just so dumb. Yep. Um Oh, this is another Randall line. You are very protective of him, Randall. You always have been. Territoriality. He was mine first. That's that's that brother thing you were talking about. That's what that makes you yep. feel. Um Oh the here's another one I've actually used uh in my life. You hate people, but I love gatherings. Isn't it ironic?
0: <laughs> I could see me using that one in the future.
1: Yep. Yep. Add that into the lexicon. Um,
0: I think all four of you had better sit
1: down and talk it over. All four? You, Veronica, Caitlin, and Caitlin's fiance. That's a pretty good little uh, reveal. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's see. Oh. um, Oh. It would have been funnier if he referenced the guy
0: in the bathroom. Later,
1: ooh, <laughs> that would have been some dark humor,
0: um, <laughs> and him and that kind of thing. Yeah,
1: uh, this does reference the bathroom, though. Right before Caitlin goes back there, such a sordid state of affairs, and I'm caught in the middle, torn between my loyalty for the boss and my desire to piss with the lights on. And that that <laughs> there, that's one of those lines I talk about where it's like it both feels like something somebody would say and also not a way that anyone would talk. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But it just works. Um, but also
0: it reminded you about the lights not working or reminded you about that situation. So when she face when she comes out all of a sudden you have the dawning light on your mm-hmm. light clicks on, because yep. all of a sudden it all comes back.
1: And it makes sense too in that, the lights don't go, the lights don't stop working until like five o'clock in the afternoon. And that guy's been back there all day. So the lights yeah. would have been working for him just fine. Or he would have come out yeah. right away. Yeah. Um, uh, let's see. Oh, uh, this, uh, I got a couple of super cuts here. They're, they're not super long, but bunch of savages in this town, bunch of savages in this town, bunch of savages in this town. I mean, bunch of savages. Yeah and and finally because it's said five times in the movie and it's it's probably the most quoted line uh in fact uh Brian O'Halloran who I've met um Brian O'Halloran came to our local comic con a few years back he's a wonderful person he was really really cool um i was there with my uh my girlfriend at the time and her son and he was he must have been 9 or 10 and we're talking with Brian and all this and then uh we mentioned how um you know we were big fans of the movie and uh Michael who I think he was I think he was 10 said something about he, we had shown him uh I think we'd shown him dogma by that point um but uh he's like but but you haven't seen clerks yet right because uh if you got if you if if they've shown you clerks you guys are doing a bad job of parenting like he was, he was, <laughs> but he was, oh, he was great. He was so much fun, but he, he uses the line, this line, the, I'm not even supposed to be here today. And like all of his cameos when he shows up in other, um, other movies, uh, was it, he had it in Jane silent Bob strike back where they, they do something with like a, a lobotomy and it's him on a table and he's just screaming, I'm not even supposed to be here today. Like that's, that's, oh, his that's catch, yeah. it's his catchphrase now. So I captured those. Not even
0: supposed to be here today.
1: I'm not even supposed to be here today.
0: I'm not even supposed to be here today. I'm not even supposed to be here today. I'm not even supposed to be here today. Oh, f- you!
1: The last one is great because Randall finally just loses it. So <laughs> there's nothing more exhilarating than pointing out the shortcomings of others, is there? That's another good line. I didn't capture that one, but that's a good one. There's a few of those. Yeah. I, I just think I, – I do think that if you are a film fan, this is a actually kind of an important movie to see because you can kind of – as we mentioned, it's independent film and it's a type of film that we don't get currently. Um, I'm really glad you got to see it and that you mostly enjoyed it. Uh,
0: no, I, I did. And even if, even if I walked out kind of disliking it uh, in any way, shape, or form, it's still something that – it's like sitting through – I don't know – Uh, Citizen Kane it's something that you should do whether you like it or not when you walk out it's something that is referenced enough and is classic enough and is landmark enough that you need to see it and for our generation for people born I'd say 71 70 71 on uh, this movie is a huge kind of touchstone moment for filmmaking
1: yeah, and it really shows what you can do with a limited budget. You don't have to have a large budget and super uh like visual crazy visual styling in order to tell a story that has an effect and can can get some points across. Like there's some good phil- philosophy in this too of kind of You know, does your, does your station in life uh, dictate the way that you act or do you kind of just jump out and do your own thing? Um, And, and sort of, it hit right in that slacker uh, period as well, obviously came out right after Linklater slacker. Um, So, yeah, I do, I agree with you. It's kind of an, it's a touchstone movie. It's an important movie. Um, And I just like the fact that you can see what can be done for, you know, pennies in terms of filmmaking. Uh, I think can... it's even
0: more important now because we could do the same thing. We could have our friends who work at the local convenience store. Mm-hmm. We could lock down our iPhone 13s, yep. put it on black and white and use our movie iMovie and turn out something like that in probably a week. Yeah. For a lot less money, but it wouldn't have the same thing because I'm not Kevin Smith.
1: Yeah. That's really what it comes down to. Is is we could do that, but we don't have that same heart, that same the the passion and the desire that he had to make this, um, and what he went through doing it, uh, yeah. in order to put it on I don't, screen.
0: I don't have that because I don't have that catharsis. I need to shake off. I don't have that monkey. I have to get off my back. Right. So for me to do it, it'd feel disingenuous. And even if it was like a shot by shot, line for line remake, it would not have the same uh, purpose.
1: Yeah, very very true. Well, I'm really glad that you that you have seen this and that we've ticked it off your list of shame. So, so uh, I'm happy about that. Now you are uh, getting ready to start season four of America's Next Top Podcaster, correct? Yeah, we I think we actually record our first episode on Monday, tomorrow. Oh wow, excellent! Uh, for those that don't know, I was uh, a contestant on season two. Hammond is producer. Um, and i'm excited I'm excited for this uh, this next season. In fact, we have one of the contestants in the chat room. Sirenex is here. Uh, Sean White, he will be on season four as well. Um, so uh, what kind of a delay what are we looking at as far as like when season four episodes will start um, start being Dropping. available Yeah
0: so uh, I'm going to be doing like I did last year the patreon feed, and the patreon feed is the more complete show with, like the it's the how to podcast part of the event the experience and since i'm doing that and it's going to be pretty straightforward and pretty much the live studio recording so to speak the patreon feed will probably happen pretty quick Uh, bobby frankenberger is doing the uh main feed editing again and it kind of depends on what the workflow is as far as how much audio he's getting and how much time he can do it but i'm sure there'll probably be a
1: minimum three week turnaround okay so, if you just want to kind of hear uh, the results of everything and sort of the the, the bare bones, uh, you got a few weeks, and that'll be hitting the the feed. And it's America's Next Top Podcaster dot com, correct? Um, yes. Mm-hmm. Or if you want, is it uh, what's the Patreon uh, page?
0: I think it's um, the same thing. America's Next Top Podcaster okay. Patreon, I think. So, Alex Albisu runs that. I, I don't ever go there because I don't have the passwords.
1: Ah, um. But definitely if you are into podcasting at all, uh, the Patreon feed is 100% worth it because um, there is a lot of great, great information in there.
0: Between all the people who are working on the show, there's like 100 years of podcasting experience of of all of those combined. You've got Tom, you've got Scott, you've got Jury Jenny Josephson who's done radio and podcasting, you got Brian who's been doing it forever like he he was in the podcasting for dummies book uh and you got me you got you've got all these people who've been doing it for a very very long time all working together to teach and kind of help people avoid the pitfalls and perils of getting started
1: yep yep and jf you're right we also have the season one winner in our chat amy frost is in chat Ooh, i feel privileged that amy
0: took time out of her evening to listen to little old me yeah
1: so uh it's it is a great show and it was a wonderful experience um and it, I haven't uh I haven't talked to you in a little while but I want to say thank you for everything you do for that show um and and all of that and you have been a wonderful resource and just uh, a great guest for this show and a great friend so thank you uh also for that I I had such a good time and I had such a good experience doing that I just want everyone to to enjoy uh, ANTP because I think it's a really cool thing that uh, you and Brian and everybody, everybody puts on and everybody's amazing. Yeah. So I appreciate
0: that very much. That's very kind. I, my, my role has changed. I mean, I, when the first two seasons, it was just me and Brian Mm -hmm. and uh, my freelance work picked up a lot and it just, it just works out that I just do the Patreon feed now because I've got a lot of other shows I'm working on. But I'm still really glad to be involved. I'm doing the editing challenge this year because uh, that's that's my thing. So,
1: Excellent. Excellent. America'sNextTopPodcaster.com. Definitely check that out. And um, thank you, Hammond, for being here this week. This was a, a fun one. It was a fun conversation, and I'm glad. I was really curious about your thoughts on this movie given that, like like you said, you were graduating college the year it came out, and I knew you were right around that time. Um so I was really curious how, if you hadn't seen it, how it was going to hit. And I kind of, I, it's very neat to hear or very interesting to hear that that you like it more now than you feel like you would have then. Oh, um, most definitely. I
0: definitely think so.
1: So very, very cool. Um, where can people find other things that you uh, work on, other uh, shows or projects or anything like that?
0: Uh, if you go to com, you pretty much lead you everywhere. I do Soundography with Brian Ibbett. Uh We're in the middle of season eight. Uh, we just had our Tori Amos episode come out. Nice. Uh, I do Beyond the Playlist with J. Hammond C. I I interview people who live and work in creative, the creative endeavors. Uh, I, I do a movie kind of chat with a woman who's a director and stunt woman who lives in England. So once a month we talk movies. And we just did This Means War. It came out today. Very uh, cool. And then I produce From the Future with Love and a bunch of other shows as well. So,
1: Excellent. Excellent. Uh, so this show I record Sunday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern time. You can uh, hang out live uh, in the chat room at twitch.tv slash tvstravis. And then as a podcast, it's available at tvstravis.com. Uh, or anywhere you get your podcasts. Um, and leaving a rating and review on, a, on the podcast kind of player, if it's an Apple or or something, does make the show more discoverable and does help out a lot, so I do appreciate that. I also have merchandise available. If you care to have my silly logo on a T-shirt or a mouse pad or something, you can go to store.streamelements.com slash Stravis and pick up I Got Coffee Mugs as well. Um, I'm actually going to be getting myself one of the big mouse pads. Um to have for overhead shots when i'm painting because i think i think that'll be fun to have uh so that's right
0: you were helping brian get his stuff set up
1: yeah i was helping him get his paint streams um kind of giving him some some tips on what i was doing those are coming along nice he's uh his new camera setup looks really good so uh and and yeah i do paint uh miniatures and and figures uh on my stream here at uh twitch.tv slash TV travis a couple times a week usually um This past week I had a couple of guest spots to do uh, on other shows and I got busy, but, uh, I'll be back to that this week as well. My Corvus Cabal, um, uh, Warhammer age of Sigmar figures are all primed now because I got a new airbrush and I got to play with that and that's a game changer. Oh boy. Let me tell you. Um, (laughs) and I also have let's watch Highlander, uh, which is a show that I do with Audie Norman, uh, where we talk about Highlander the series and we are, uh, midway, th- or we are coming up in the midway point of season four already. We have been doing four seasons of this show now. It's crazy to think we've been at it that long, uh, and that's on. So Tuesdays. I have, a,
0: I have a, I have a comment about.
1: Um, what's the guy's name that plays the lead?
0: Adrian Paul. Yes, in the '90s when they cast Pierce Brosnan as James Bond, I had wanted him to
1: take over Bond. Ooh, I could have seen that. Adrian Paul could have made a really good James Bond.
0: I think he would have been a fantastic Bond, especially coming after Dalton, which I think had the attitude of Bond but couldn't pull it off because the scripts were weak. I think he would have been better than Rosnan.
1: I, you have got my brain clicking on a few different things tonight, and that's that's another one. I uh, Man, I could see that, especially when I think about some of the uh, flashback scenes that they would do in... Um, in a uh, Highlander to like the fifties and sixties and kind of picturing mm-hmm. him there. Oh yeah. I could see that. I think Adrian Paul is a fascinating because his acting also just got so much better. Like as that series went on mm-hmm. um, and, yep. and like Brosnan, I feel like Adrian Paul could have pulled off some of the, the wink kind of wink at the camera yep. type stuff mm-hmm. a little bit better. Cause I think his comedic yep. timing Yeah.
0: And also I would have been been more believable that he could have killed somebody because I don't I don't ever really buy that Brosnan was going to hurt anybody.
1: Not as much then, although I will say uh, the Brosnan that I've seen in a few things in the last few years, older Brosnan, I can buy that. Yeah. um, Oh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. But you're right. Younger Brosnan, even coming off of Remington Steel, that was never a Remington Steel was never like a shoot a bunch of people kind of character. So, yeah, yeah, no, that's a good one. That's, that's really good. So we've Um, got
0: peanuts and Adrian Paul. Yeah.
1: We've got Duncan McLeod as James Bond and peanuts in, uh, uh, the reservoir dogs universe. It's, uh, it's been quite a night. (laughs) Well, Hammond, thank you again. This was great. Uh, we'll have to, we'll have to have you back on, uh, inside of a year. I think it was just about a year ago. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, definitely uh, you know welcome back anytime if you think of a movie that you haven't seen or you know, if you have one that you just love, uh, it could be SLC Punk uh, if you're up to watching it again. Um, yeah, you know, oh, I'd definitely come back and talk about that movie because uh, that's where I live. Uh, yeah, that's right. That is right. Excellent. Well, uh, that's gonna do it for this week. Now next week, what do I have? I have I have a good one for next week. I bet you're having a guest and you're talking about a movie. You would be quite accurate in that. Uh, Boy. Uh, Oh, next week. Oh, that's right. I am having my friend David is coming back. Uh, David Myers, who was on a bunch of earlier. I'm going to show him a movie called Identity, starring John Cusack next week. Uh, If you haven't seen this movie before, it is worth checking out. It is a fantastic little thriller. And then after. I think
0: I saw that one. I think I saw that one.
1: Yeah, it's got John Cusack, Ray Liotta, um, Alfred Molina is in it, um, Jake Busey, uh, Amanda Mm -hmm. Peet. Yep, I know that one. uh, Directed by James Mangold, who went on to do um, Logan, amongst others. He had Mm -hmm. also done Copland. Uh, I'm really looking forward to it because I love this movie. And then the week after that, Audie and uh, Ace in our chat are going to join me, and we're going to talk about Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Which one? The first one, the original movie. Um, Ace has never seen it before, and Audie is a huge TMNT fan, and that movie's got some fun. He's also a fan
0: of. A, he's also a fan of gargoyles too.
1: Yeah, that's right. There was—I'll I tell you—there was some good late '80s, early '90s cartoons uh, out there, and gargoyles and TMNT are a couple of those. And that first Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles movie is another one that holds a very special place in my heart. Um, Well, for
0: me, I just look at it as a technical achievement because they had you believe that the puppets and the animatronics, you forgot about that and watched the movie. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until either when you walk in or you walk out and you realize that you just got fooled by this amazing technological advancement in puppeteering.
1: Yeah, Uh, definitely going to have a lot to say about that. So that's what's coming up in the next couple of weeks. Uh, on this show so Hammond once again thank you so much and um for everyone else out there uh you know enjoy your movies and let's be excellent to each other especially with how things are right now